Welcome to the University of Sydney and to tonight's Sydney Ideas Public Lecture on the Madhouse Effect, Climate Change Denial in the Age of Trump. Please join me in welcoming Professor Michael Mann. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much, Chris, for that kind introduction. And thanks to the University of Sydney, uh, the Sydney Environment uh, Institute, uh, for hosting my visit. And thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Um, it, it's really uh, great to, uh, to, to speak to this audience uh, about um, this issue of climate change. And it is a, a unique and interesting time uh, to be talking about climate change for reasons that have already been alluded to and reasons that I'll uh, be talking about in my presentation. Now, uh, this book of mine, the, the Madhouse Effect, it came out last fall, uh, and it uh, represents a collaboration between uh, Tom Tolles, who's the editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post, um, and me. And uh, you might ask, you know, how is it that an editorial cartoonist would combine forces with uh, a climate scientist. Um, and the answer is that, you know, as a scientist, I'm used to talking about the issue of climate change in very cerebral terms, in terms of numbers and graphs and data. Uh, but uh, that hasn't quite gotten us out of the madhouse of climate change denial. And uh, I think uh, in part because it's just as important to, to reach people um, through their heart as uh, through their mind. And comedy and satire and, yes, a little bit of ridicule um, really provides a unique uh, vehicle for communicating uh, information uh, in a hostile environment. Um, often, you know, today we find that some of the hardest-hitting commentary uh, takes place in, you know, cartoons by folks like Tom Tolles or on television shows like uh, John Oliver, um, uh, Bill Maher. Um, comedy gives you a license to talk about things that are often very difficult to talk about in terms of straight up commentary. So we felt that maybe this was an opportunity to see if we could cut through um, sort of the, uh, the, the, the misinformation and the disinformation about climate change by, by approaching it in a different way and using Tom's cartoons over the years and, and a bunch of new ones that he did for the book to, to explore a different way of talking about the issue. Um, as uh, Chris alluded to, you know, we, we published this uh, last fall. Um, we had no idea at, at that time who was going to win the election. And I'll tell you, uh, I can't count the number of colleagues and friends who told me, you know, why are you guys doing a book about climate change denial? I mean, we're past all of that. Uh, we've moved on. Um, well, uh, historical events, uh, unfortunately, have proven otherwise, and we are back firmly now in the madhouse. So uh, we are, in fact, dealing uh, with the denial of climate change in the era of uh, Donald J. Trump. Let's first of all start out um, by getting a few things out of the way. Uh, you know, there are those who challenge uh, the um, sort of mainstream understanding of human-caused climate change. Uh, you know, there are critics who uh, you know question um, uh, the uh, widespread uh, consensus science. Um, based often on the flimsiest of arguments that don't hold up to the slightest bit of scrutiny. Now, 
true skepticism, scientific skepticism is an essential thing. It's what keeps science moving towards a better and better understanding of the way our world works. But one-sided skepticism, uh, based on the dismissal of uh, robust um, consensus science, again, based on silly arguments, that's not skepticism, that's uh, contrarianism or denial. And while some of the climate change critics uh, would like to fashion themselves as modern-day Galileos railing against the scientific establishment, uh, they're really just cranks, in large part, dressed up like Galileo. The basics, not that hard to understand. You put CO2 into the atmosphere, you warm up the planet, uh, the scientific, uh, the, the fundamental scientific tenets behind uh, climate change and global warming have been known for nearly two centuries. They go back to Joseph Fourier in the early uh, 19th century who understood that there was a greenhouse effect. And yes, it's true, we uh, will never be 100% certain about anything in science. And that's true about climate change, and it's true about the theory of gravity. But there's about as widespread a consensus when it comes to human-caused climate change now as there is about the theory of gravity. Now, sometimes uh, you encounter various arguments um, like, uh, you know, well, you know, when it comes to the, the impacts of climate change, um, you know, there are certain areas uh, at sort of the forefront of the research where scientists are still debating the precise connections, and that involves things like the, the relationship between climate change and tornadoes and hurricanes. And one of the uh, statements you often hear um, when there's an unprecedented uh, weather event, um, you'll hear the critics say, well, you know, you can't prove that this event was made worse by climate change. Um, it, it could have happened uh, naturally. And I liken that in, in, in the, the U.S., of course, uh, we, uh, baseball is uh, one of our uh, most loved sports. Um, and uh, there has been a scandal um, in the past where baseball players have taken steroids to increase their strength and uh, have broken the record for the number of home runs that they hit in that season uh, only to uh, have those uh, records invalidated because it was discovered uh, that they had been taking steroids. And, you know, I suppose they could make the argument that um, you couldn't prove that any one of those home runs that they hit that season was caused by the steroids. Well, that's true, but it's irrelevant. The fact that they hit so many home runs uh, was certainly due to the steroids. And the climate, essentially climate change, is sort of putting our weather on steroids. And it isn't a coincidence uh, that, you know, we've had the strongest hurricane measured by peak wind speed uh, ever in the northern hemisphere within the last year and a half. And we've had the strongest landfalling hurricane ever measured here in the southern hemisphere within the last year and a half. I don't think that's coincidence. Why should we care? Well, you know, we've got polar bears uh, up in our pole, and you folks have penguins down at your pole. Um, and often, you know, I'll, I'll be frank, you know, I, I show the polar bear on the ice floe here um, in all of my presentations because it's the law. If you give a talk about climate change, you have to show a polar bear or a penguin uh, stranded on an ice floe. Uh, but it's so much more. It's about the beauty and wonder of our world and not leaving behind a degraded planet for our children and grandchildren where these magnificent creatures uh, can no longer live. Uh, but fundamentally, um, well, and, you know, 
also relevant uh, here is you know, the demise of coral reefs. Um, some of you may have seen this. Uh, there was an epitaph written for the Great Barrier Reef. It was sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, a few months ago because the, the Great Barrier Reef isn't literally dead yet. But we are on a path now because of the effects of uh, ocean uh, warming and coral bleaching and ocean acidification due to increasing CO2 levels, um, where scientists tell us we will see the demise of this magnificent uh, entity, the Great Barrier Reef, uh, within a matter of decades if we don't change course. Uh, so again, is that the sort of world we want to leave behind for our children and grandchildren? Um, and it isn't just about the beauty and wonder of the world, it's about the fact that we have a growing global population competing for less food, less water, and less land um, in, in a world where we allow climate change to continue. Uh, that would reflect a, a fundamental challenge for human civilization. Um, and the, the impacts of climate change really are no longer subtle. We're seeing them uh, play out in real time. But despite that, despite how clear it is, not just that climate change is happening and that it's due to human activity, but it's having an adverse impact uh, on our daily lives, despite that, there does continue to be a denial of climate change. Um, uh, how many people have heard the argument that there is a pause in global warming, that global warming has stopped? Um, it's a very widespread claim, and it's rather odd because 2014 was the warmest year on record until 2015, which was the warmest year on record, until 2016, which was the warmest year on record. So it doesn't sound like global warming has stopped, does it? Um, the only pause, uh, arguably, is in us taking the actions uh, necessary to do something about it. January, by the way, as if to welcome me to Sydney, I arrived to 38 degrees Celsius temperatures um, last weekend. Um, and of course, January was the hottest uh, month ever recorded here in Sydney. Again, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. We're seeing them play out in real time. So, all right, the critics will say, all right, well, maybe there isn't a pause after all. They'll concede that. But, uh, all right, but temperatures change naturally. Um, and it's true, temperatures change naturally. You have El Ninos come and go. Um, Stovetop temperatures change naturally. Those frogs have nothing to worry about. Um, uh, it's an absurd argument, and, and scientists can actually look at this rigorously because we can uh, take into account the natural factors like volcanoes and small changes in solar output that impact the climate, and we can put those into the climate models and see what happens, and then we can add the effect of human beings, increase greenhouse gas concentrations into the models. And when you just include the natural factors, uh, the models say that the planet should have actually cooled slightly in recent decades. Natural factors can't explain the warming we've seen. Only the increased concentration of greenhouse gases from human activity can actually explain the warming that we've seen. Well, then the next argument is, okay, well, maybe it is warming. Um, maybe it's not entirely natural, but uh, it's self-correcting. It'll just correct itself. And unless you mean by self-correcting that sea level rises to the point where all of our coal-fired power plants are submerged, um, the climate is in no sense self-correcting. We can get global temperatures back up to Cretaceous levels um, if we burn all of the available fossil fuels. Now, the Cretaceous happened naturally over 
time scales of you know tens, literally a hundred million years. Uh, these gases built up in the atmosphere and then they slowly decreased. Um, so over the last hundred million years, all that CO2 in the atmosphere that made the Cretaceous so warm uh, eventually got buried beneath the surface of the Earth. What we're doing is we are unburying all that carbon but not on a time scale of 100 million years. We're doing it on a time scale of 100 years, a million times faster. And there's simply no evidence that uh, life, including us, can adapt to rates of change that great. Well, the next argument is, well, all right, um, yeah, maybe it isn't self-correcting, but it'll be good for us, right? Melting ice sheets lift all boats, after all. Um, and no, it won't be good for us. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, has rigorously studied based on thousands of, of peer-reviewed articles, um, the, the various impacts of climate change and uh, how they are likely to play out as we continue to warm the globe. And it's quite clear that if we warm the globe more than about two degrees Celsius, um, we're already more than one degree Celsius, we've got another half a degree Celsius already in the pipeline as the globe warms up in response to the CO2 we've already put up into the atmosphere. So we don't have a lot of wiggle room if we're going to avoid 2 degrees Celsius. And if we do cross 2 degrees Celsius, that's really where we start to see negative impacts across the board, whether we're talking about water, food, health, national security, our economy. Um, it's not going to be good for us. And finally, the sort of denialist canon, once, you know, We've conceded that, well, no, it won't be good for us either. Um, the argument is, well, you know what? I'm sorry, but it, it, it took so much time debating this that you know, it's too late. It's too late to actually do anything now, so I guess we'll just have to give up. And fortunately, that isn't true either. There absolutely is still time uh, to make the changes necessary to avoid uh, crossing into truly dangerous and irreversible climate change. But there isn't a whole lot of time, so there is uh, an urgency unlike we've ever seen before in acting. All right, so uh, as we've seen, there is this um, denial of climate change that's widespread despite the overwhelming degree of the scientific consensus. And it's not just by chance, it's not just happenstance that, that climate change denialism is particularly widespread in countries that have an entrenched fossil fuel industry, like the United States, like Australia. Um, and there has been an effort uh, for you know, decades now. Fossil fuel interests have literally spent millions and millions of US or Australian dollars um, on a massive misinformation campaign intended to confuse the public and policymakers about the reality and threat of climate change, much like the tobacco industry spent millions of dollars trying to fool the public and policymakers about the dangers of their product. Um, some of the same scientist advocates who are being paid by the fossil fuel industry today to deny climate change were being paid by tobacco interests decades ago to deny the threat of cigarettes and tobacco products. Um, so there's this war on climate science, and uh, undoubtedly, until like the last Japanese soldier still fighting World War II, um, discovered only <laughs> years ago, as long as there are fossil fuels uh, to burn, uh, we will likely see industry-funded uh, climate change denial. Um, but it will become irrelevant and, and marginalized. We will move on. We will solve this problem. Uh, the question is, uh, how much delay are we willing to allow in the meantime? 
So climate change and denialism, there is a certain amount of hypocrisy that is encountered in the campaign to attack the science and to deny the reality of climate change. And I want to talk about one particular example. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, uh, a, um, it was the former attorney general of Virginia, um, a, um, a Roman Catholic of Italian uh, uh, ancestry, um, a Tea Party, uh, ultra-conservative, um, uh, you know, a uniquely uh, American sort of uh, politician, of course. Um, and so Ken Cuccinelli, a number of years ago, Attorney General of uh, Virginia, um, attempted to subpoena all of my personal emails from the time I was at the University of Virginia um, based on the fact that he was using what's known as a civil investigative demand, a civil subpoena that is available to the Attorney General to ferret out state waste and fraud. And since Ken Cuccinelli considered the science of climate change to be fraudulent, um, and since I had been engaged in research on the science of climate change while I had been at the University of Virginia, he saw this as a perfectly appropriate um, uh, use of uh, the civil subpoena. Uh, it was heavily criticized at the time by the Washington Post, uh, wrote no less than five editorials blasting Ken Cuccinelli and his witch hunt against uh, the University of Virginia and me. Um, the editorial, uh, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist uh, Tom Tolles, uh, my co-author uh, at the time, um, actually weighed in on this matter not once but twice. And I have to say I do, I do sort of uh, like that <laughs> cartoon. I, poor Galileo uh, Cuccinelli wants his emails as well. And uh, I don't mind being compared to Galileo, I guess. Uh, well, the civil uh, subpoena was rejected by the, the court um, on a technicality, really. Um, in, in his 40-page filing to the court, uh, Mr. Cuccinelli had forgotten to provide evidence of wrongdoing uh, on my part. So uh, the court uh, threw it out. Uh, of course, he appealed to the uh, state Supreme Court, the highest uh, court in, in the state, um, that later uh, ruled against him with prejudice, um, meaning you know they really don't want to ever see an attorney general come back to the court with something like this again. So we prevailed in this in this battle. Um, Ken Cuccinelli ended up uh, running for governor of Virginia uh, a few years ago. Uh, I actively campaigned uh, with his opponent, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who was victorious. Um, in fact, I actually introduced Bill Clinton at that particular rally. Um, and uh, ended up writing this book with Tom Tolles, as I mentioned. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, well, he's now, um, I'm not making this up, um, he is now uh, working uh, on an oyster farm on an island, uh, Tangier Island, that is in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, neighboring Virginia. It's an island that is slowly succumbing to the effects of global sea level rise. Um, <laughs> You know, you just can't make this stuff up. Um, there really is a, a level of hypocrisy when it comes to the denial of climate change. It's unlike anything else we see. Um, but, you know, Ken Cuccinelli tried to sue us for our emails. A Koch Brothers-funded front group called the Competitive Enterprise Institute tried to sue us for exactly the same emails. They were rejected by the court, including the Supreme Court of Virginia. Um, but uh, they are now a Competitive Enterprise Institute, um, now um, had, has had a major role 
in uh, determining who will run our uh, EPA under the Trump administration. Um, so the uh, fox is sort of, uh, fox is in the hen house now when it comes to the attacks on climate change in this new environment that we're in. So some of the critics um, will say, you know, I, I accept that climate change is um, happening and, and humans probably have some role. I, I don't doubt that. Um, but they'll engage in what I call the softer, gentler, the kinder, gentler form of climate change denialism to say, but you know what, the best way to solve this problem is through some engineering uh, approach, um, some massive planetary intervention with our climate that uh, if we get really lucky, um, uh, might offset uh, the effects of global sea level rise. Uh, and many of these um, schemes are the stuff of science fiction, seemingly, uh, shooting particles into the stratosphere to block out some of the sunlight, dumping iron into the oceans to try to fertilize algae to take more CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, and with just about every one of these schemes, um, when we look at them in detail and we look at the possible consequences, we, we see the uh, principle of unintended consequences. We could potentially end up much worse than we had started out if we engage in these um, massive interventions. Uh, one of the supporters of this approach, uh, Rex Tillerson's view of climate change, is just an engineering problem. Um, and I always find it amazing when you talk to folks like Rex Tillerson, they have this amazing faith um, and optimism in our ability to engage in a massive planetary engineering project and tamper with the global Earth system and it'll all work out. Um, but you ask them, well, what if we instead took um, existing renewable energy technology and incentivized it and scaled it up? It's like, oh, there's no way you could ever do that. It's just not possible. Um, so there, there is this um, odd sort of uh, asymmetry in their optimism. Um, it's probably not the right solution. Um, the right solution is to stem this problem um, at its source. And it's not to wish for a climate policy. It's to actually do something um, here in Australia as well as where I live in the United States. And there are some reasons for optimism, even in the era of Trump. Um, let's, let's be sh clear. There are still some real reasons for optimism that not only um, can we turn the corner, we're already starting to turn the corner. Uh, the Paris summit last year, uh, 200 nations, nearly 200 nations from around the world um, made uh, uh, significant commitments to lowering their carbon emissions. And if you total up uh, all of the commitments that were made in Paris, uh, it's enough not to solve the problem. It doesn't get us below two degrees Celsius warming, which many, as I alluded to earlier, would describe as, as really the dangerous level, the truly dangerous and irreversible level of warming. Um, it doesn't get us there, but it does get us about halfway there from where we're currently headed towards more than five degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century, which would truly be catastrophic. So what it tells us is Paris got us starting to move in the right direction. It doesn't get us to the finish line, but it puts us on a path. It puts us on a path um, where um, we uh, can see stabilizing uh, 
greenhouse gas concentrations below dangerous levels. But it's going to require uh, continued effort. Um, after Trump was elected and he threatened that he might uh, pull out of the Paris Accord, uh, the rest of the countries of the world got together in Switzerland to affirm uh, their commitment to making good on uh, the Paris Accord. Uh, and uh, China, in fact, has said, which is the largest emitter, the US and China are the two largest emitters of carbon on the planet. China has said, well, you know what? We'll do even more. <laughs> the US is, uh, some people thought when the US, um, when Trump threatened uh, to withdraw support for uh, the Paris Accord, that the Chinese would say, ah, well, okay, if they're pulling out, we're pulling out. That's not what they said. They said, we're going to work even harder. And they're already decommissioning coal-fired power plants now in China. Not only aren't they building new ones, they're decommissioning existing coal-fired power plants. And they are investing far more in renewable energy technology than any other country on the planet. Reason for optimism. Um, the Pope, the encyclical uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, which sort of reframed the issue of climate change in, in, in the terms that many of us feel it should always have been framed because we talk about it so much in terms of science and policy and politics and economics. But more than anything else, acting on climate change is a matter of ethics. It's a matter of uh, not leaving behind a degraded planet for our children and grandchildren. And whether you come at it from a religious standpoint or um, just sort of an ethical um, sort of standpoint, uh, there's no doubt that uh, the papal encyclical really helped to draw attention to the urgency of action and to reframe this issue where it needs to be framed in terms of our obligation not to ruin the planet for our children and grandchildren. But we did then get Trump, um, and he's, you know, he's threatened to build a wall, and we know that he has built a wall, uh, shielding himself from the evidence of human-caused climate change. And yes, we will all pay for it. Uh, so the challenge is obviously greater. And as Chris alluded to, uh, his cabinet is filled uh, with um, individuals who have connections with the fossil fuel industry and the Koch brothers and, and, and deny the reality of climate change and have an antipathy towards um, efforts to do something about climate change. Uh, so the challenge is, is going to be greater. Without uh, the US, um, participating as a committed partner in, in global uh, efforts to reduce carbon emissions, um, the rest of the world is going to have to do more. Um, we're seeing in the US, we're seeing states step up. Uh, my good friend uh, Jerry Brown, the governor of California, who I've advised on climate change before, after he heard that uh, Trump was threatening to uh, take down the cl climate satellites, um, uh, Jerry Brown, in his inimitable uh, way, said, well, we'll put up our own damn satellites. And this, the, Jerry Brown, the state of California, are uh, committed um, to major reductions in carbon emissions. California is, the, I think, the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, just that one state. The entire West Coast is committed to putting a price on carbon and to incentivize renewable energy. The New England states are committed to that. So we're seeing, in the absence of leadership at the national level now um, in the US, we are seeing ground up leadership. And there's every reason to believe that we will make substantial progress um, in the years ahead in the US as we continue to transition towards renewable energy, even in the absence of support um, at the presidential level. 
Well, denial isn't uh, isolated. It isn't limited just uh, to uh, the U.S. Uh, of course, uh, we, we've seen that here in Australia as well, a very similar story. Um, currently, uh, Prime Minister uh, arguing for a clean coal power. Um, if it existed, I would be all for it. Um, there is no clean coal uh, today in the sense that we're able to keep the carbon emissions from entering into the atmosphere. Um, and in fact, if coal-fired power plants uh, were required to implement uh, capture and sequestration, uh, that would price them completely out of the market. If you're a free market energy economist, um, then you shouldn't be arguing the case for coal because they're just not competitive without major subsidies. They're not competitive against the increasingly efficient renewable energy that's coming on the market. This isn't just an academic debate. Uh, it isn't just another sort of um, fun, uh, playful political debate. Um, the earth literally does uh, hang in the balance. Um, and here in Australia, as, as well as back in the United States, if we want to preserve this planet for our children and grandchildren, we have to do everything we possibly can to hold our policymakers accountable and to make sure they act to take the steps necessary to limit our carbon emissions below levels that will fundamentally degrade the planet for future generations. And there's still time to do it. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Uh, I'll leave it there. I'll be happy. I guess we're going to go to the, dis the discussant, and then we'll do question and answer afterwards. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michael. That was marvellous. Um, I would now like to uh, introduce Professor David Schlossberg uh, to provide a short response to, to Michael's address. Uh, David is Professor of Environmental Politics here at the University of Sydney. Uh, and co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute, which is hosting Michael's uh, visit to Australia. Uh, David's research focuses on issues of climate and environmental justice, uh, and in particular, SEI and his research are now uh, looking also at the whole issue of adapting to climate change and its social, uh, environmental and political consequences. Thanks very much, David. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks also uh, to Michael Mann uh, for coming and spending some time with us. Uh, thanks to Michelle, wherever she is, uh, and the staff of SEI for uh, their support. And thanks to everyone for coming. Uh, it's quite a full room. So um, before getting to questions, uh, I guess I'm up here because um, I have this really odd perspective of uh, being an American, as you can hear, but also um, being an Australian, I'm a, a dual citizen, and so I am subject to bad governance twice as much uh, <laughs> as any of you. Um, and so um, I just wanted to lay out, uh, a, a, I guess, three points um, where I see some similarities and differences uh, in my experience uh, between the U.S. Uh, and, and Australia. So in Australia, as much as in the U.S., the denialists and the distortionists have undermined public knowledge, public policy, uh, the very value of the environment. So, and just as in the US, Australia's climate policy uh, is in fact based on alternative facts, on fake news, on outright lies, on industry written talking points, uh, on bullshit. 
And um, actually, at that point, I should say, um, one of the things I'm really happy about with the University of Sydney is the University of Sydney just um, funded a post-truth study uh, research group. So we actually, and I'm part of that, and uh, environmental policy will be a part of that. So the University of Sydney actually is funding bullshit detection. <laughs> now, I'm just, I just have a shout out to, uh, uh, to the university for doing that. Um, from the carbon industry capture of the two parties here, um, to the Abbott and Turnbull government parroting uh, industry talking points, to coal industry lobbyists as actual advisors to the government, um, to the idiotic conspiracy, and things go dark, um, mm. the idiotic conspiracy at that point, it makes sense, right? The conspiracy theories uh, of Malcolm Roberts um, and lone wolf uh, Trump wannabe Corey Bernardi, um, who actually has been paid and supported uh, and advised um, by the US-based denial machine. Um, the madhouse effect is in full effect um, in Australia. And I think the key question um, for Michael, as much as for the researchers at the Sydney Environment Institute, is how we counter the full force of the denial machine and actually have some science-based policies, some justice-oriented policies, some fact-based policy in direct opposition to that um, denial machine. So three basic points. And tell me if I'm wrong about this first one, but this is the first thing that I sort of came to understand as I moved or went after I moved um, to Australia. So I quickly discovered what I think is a key difference between the political cultures of the two countries. So as much as the, de the denialists have undermined Australian environmental policy, I don't think they've been as successful here yet, I should say, at undermining a deep-seated Australian respect for common good, for science, and for knowledge-based policy and expertise. And like I said, maybe there are some in the room who try to prove me wrong. So I left the US in 2011. I was living in Arizona at the time. I had experienced the full weight of the racism, the white nationalism, the anti-intellectual, anti-education, anti-fact atmosphere that has since gone national. And I told people that I left Arizona because it became anti-enlightenment. And people thought, they didn't really know what to think. They just thought that was kind of a funny, it was, it was a joke. But people aren't laughing at it anymore because this actually has happened um, more broadly in the US. But shortly after I arrived here, I remember vividly Tony Abbott attacking the work of economist uh, Ross Garneau. Right? Um, Abbott attacked Garneau's report, which simply pointed out the cost of climate and action and the viability of putting a price on, car on carbon. He attacked it as anti-democratic. And then he doubled down and dismissed not just Garneau, but the entire field uh, of um, Australian uh, economists. Other denialists, of course, took this as license uh, and ripped into Garneau and others as fascists, and um, the game went up from there. Um, this is stuff that Michael is well familiar with. But what was surprising to me at that point as this new transplant is that the public, a large portion of the public, I should say, seemed appalled by Abbott's trashing of an academic, and there was a backlash. The attack wasn't just on the carbon price, on a policy recommendation, but on science and knowledge uh, as it fed policy. And then there was a chief scientist on TV defending the academy, and that's when I learned that Australia actually has a chief scientist, and the media actually listened to him. We didn't have this kind of thing in Arizona. Right? Um, and I think Abbott wound up backing down and apologizing, but that's not really the point, right? The point is that there seems to me to be a stronger cultural norm here that supports science, that respects expertise, 
that understands that real knowledge um, should and can be used to inform good policy in the public interest. And that continues. And there are a number of examples uh, of that when the government fired all the climate scientists at CSIRO, for example, there was a big backlash and the government had to step back a little bit. When the government wanted to support, again, the idiocy of someone like Bjorn Lomborg, who's a virtual vortex of post-truth, um, <laughs> there was a huge outcry, not just from the university sector, from, but from the public as well. And even though they dumped $400,000 on him, which still just gets me um, to this day, they couldn't import him, they couldn't plug him into any Australian university um, because of the backlash. As Michael says, it's not just about the science. The main issue is the cultural understanding and respect for the role of science in informing political decisions. And again, as a new Australian, as a new transplant, um, from a place where academics are routinely accused of brainwashing youth to be America-hating communists, this is what my father-in-law truly thinks I do, um, I've been impressed and proud um, of the public culture that's more respectful of reason knowledge and it's used for the public good here. So that's reason for hope here. And again, tell me if I'm wrong. My second point isn't as positive. The problem here, I think, isn't so much a culture turning against the Enlightenment, um, but it's the direct political power and influence of the carbon industry. Um, there isn't necessarily this mediating factor. They don't need this shift uh, in the public because they own uh, the government. I think this is most evident not just in the poor emissions and climate policies, um, but the fact that under the influence of the carbon industry, the Australian government is hell-bent on sabotaging an entire industrial sector. And for me, honestly, the sabotage of the renewables industry here in Australia, an all-out attack on one of the most promising industries on the planet, is nothing less than treasonous. We have a set of politicians <coughs> under the influence of a dying industry, undermining one of the most promising areas of its own economy for the sole benefit of the carbon diggers at the expense of the rest of Australia, the next generation, uh, and of the planet. And the justification for that is all based on bullshit, right? It's straight from the PR of the carbon industry, energy security, energy poverty, clean coal, it's all crap. We know it, and they know it. It's just PR. But again, okay, that's harsh. <laughs> but even there, I do think there's some hope. We've seen over the last few years here an incredible coalition grow, one focused on the end of carbon mining, on protecting communities, on creating real jobs, on supporting the renewables industry. And we see this in the once, I mean, really unthinkable coalition of farmers and Aboriginal communities fighting new mines, new attacks on sacred and fertile land uh, and water. We've seen that in household investment in rooftop solar. And once the feed-in tariffs are gone, these people are going to be buying batteries and supporting the industry that way. As hard as the government resists, renewables are growing. The public supports it. Even the conservatives support it. Uh, and this industry will be the innovator, the job creator, the future of the energy system in this country. That's a movement. That's a transformation that won't falter in the face of bullshit. Third point, and one that's crucial to make, and I'm sorry because this is the most dire one, all of this talk about the science, about the power of the denialist machine, about post-truth, the sabotage of renewables, it's all about one side of the climate issue. It's about mitigation. The other side 
frankly, is crucial, especially to us here in Australia. And that's how we adapt to the climate change that the denialist machine has already baked into our future. This nice, stable time of the last 10,000 years where we've evolved, built our cities, our infrastructure, our supply chains, the expectations of our everyday lives, it's over. Right? Climate change means change. This is happening. It's happening here. Adaptation is the new battle, and it has to be fair adaptation. It's got to be just adaptation. We know who benefits from denialism and the sabotage of renewables. It's pretty straightforward on the other side. Who's going to be harmed? Who's already being harmed um, if we don't plan for coming change? We know who dies in heat waves and in storms. The poor, the elderly, those who live alone, those without resources. So this is happening. Right? The, the Rockefeller-funded Resilient Sydney Project found that the number one regional stress in the Sydney region is going to be to health services in the face of heat waves. This is our number one stress. If we don't address that, vulnerable people will continue to die right here every time it heats up, like this weekend. So Australia needs to face to adaptation planning, face up to adaptation planning on a large scale. And again, I'm proud to be part of an institution, the Sydney Environment Institute, the, the University of Sydney, where this matters, where we have a huge focus on the health and social impacts of climate change and on adaptation. Um, so, for example, with the City of Sydney and Resilient Sydney, we've got a new project uh, going um, to interview people to deal, to, to try and understand the community experience of shock events so that we can more clearly understand the complexity of those events and respond uh, in the policy process. So our focus is not just calling out bullshit, um, but ways of finding ways of addressing the very real impacts of denialist policy and adapting and doing that in a fair and just way. And that's crucial work. So that's enough for me, at least two questions. So yes, Australia has industry-led denialists creating a madhouse effect. But honestly, honestly, as a, as a new Australian, I think we're a bit better placed here that we can use the broad political culture of respect for science and of the fair go to resist bullshit, to pull off an energy transformation, adapt fairly uh, and justly to the inevitable changes that we have to face. Thank you. Thank you, David, for that impassioned uh, and fascinating uh, response. So um, I'm now going to ask uh, Michael and David to take chairs over there in preparation for Q&A. And the way we're going to run this tonight is we're going to have two uh, microphones, uh, one around here and one over there in that corridor. And I'd ask those of you who would like to ask a question to form an orderly queue in either of these rows. Um, we'll be taking the questions two at a time. Um, I'd also ask you, if you're going to ask a question, if perhaps you could identify yourself, uh, keep it to a question rather than a comment, if possible, uh, and keep it short, because I'm anticipating we're probably going to have a lot of questions or a lot of demand for questions, and it, I guess it's just courtesy to the other questioners that uh, an individual doesn't hog up all the time. So that's the way we're planning to run it. So if you'd like to ask a question uh, of uh, Michael or David, um, start forming a queue down here or over there. Uh, Meredith's over there with a the microphone, Michelle with a microphone. Uh, and as I said, we'll take them two at a time. So uh, we might have our first question here and then our second question over there. Thank you. Um, 
Um, to Michael or David, thank you very much. Um, isn't the crux of the whole battle in climate change that their marketers are better than ours? That they're uh, what marketers? Oh, before you start, Michael, we might just get the second question as well. Yep. Yeah. We in the wake of the recent NOAA scandal where tainted data was put out just before the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, is it acceptable that any scientist uh, manipulates the science or the data for their personal beliefs or for the greater social good? Great. Okay. Two questions. So we'll take this one first and then go to the second. Okay. So, uh, yes, ultimately, you know, uh, the fossil fuel industry is the single... Uh, most powerful, wealthiest industry on the face of the earth. So if you're doing battle with the fossil fuel industry, you're going to be outmatched uh, on a monetary basis. That having been said, uh, I do think that there are good actors within the fossil fuel industry who recognize that you know, ultimately we do need to change our way of getting energy. We do need to transition away from fossil fuels. And I think increasingly they will be playing a more and more important role, particularly when you take into account the issue of uh, stranded assets, that ultimately if we have to leave a large amount of uh, the fossil fuels in the ground, then it's going to be difficult to justify uh, the business model of extraction, of continued extraction. Now, with respect to the other uh, question, um, so you know, th there are a lot of these uh, pseudo-scandals that uh, magically happen days before major hearings, uh, before the scientific community can respond to the false allegations. Uh, that was true of the so-called climate gate uh, PR campaign of uh, 2009, which happened in the weeks leading up to the Copenhagen summit, where thousands of stolen emails uh, were combed through and words and phrases were taken to try to make it sound like climate scientists were fudging the data, manipulating the data. And uh, this quickly made the rounds in the conservative media and eventually into mainstream media uh, sources. Um, there have now been, uh, I think, depending on how you count, 10 investigations, all of which have found that there was no wrongdoing on the part of the climate scientists, that the only wrongdoing was the criminal theft of the emails in the first place. But those took years to play out. And in the meantime, uh, the critics were able to essentially hijack the discussion at the Copenhagen summit and prevent uh, meaningful action from being taken. So this latest um, pseudo-scandal where a number of uh, allegations that are uh, patently false about uh, NOAA scientists, some of whom I know personally and can attest to their integrity, um, uh, malicious accusations have been made against them in an effort to create an atmosphere of controversy as the chair of the House Science Committee, Lamar Smith, the House of Representatives uh, Science Committee, one of the largest recipients of fossil fuel money in the House of Representatives and a climate change denier is going to be holding a conference, a, a hearing in a few days. And lo and behold, now there's this great pseudo scandal that he can use as a distraction uh, to again um, you know, prevent us from focusing on the matter at hand, um, doing something about the problem of climate change. Okay, David, did you want to make a comment there? No, good. Okay, so <laughs> two questions. <laughs> Two more questions. Well, you can go first. If you do identify yourself when you're asking a question, that'd be great too. Uh, Susie Fraser, Citizens Climate Lobby. It looks like we're facing a major tragedy. I just wondered anything you guys might be able to say to me and other people who probably lobby that we could say to get our point across more powerfully. 
Great. And second question, if you just identify yourself first. Uh, Dr. Ian McGregor for University of Technology. Uh, a similar question, but as a global citizen, um, I, I, I'm a citizen uh, of European Union and Australia, um, how do I counter Trump or how, what can we do to counter the denialism of the US government, which is, after China, the second largest emitter globally? So any suggestions on countering Trump and uh, his denialism? Yeah, um, well, I'll first tackle this. And, and thanks for, it's great, um, you know, Citizens Climate Lobby um, uh, is uh, an organization um, that originated in the United States. Um, and everywhere I go to talk uh, about climate change, there are always people from uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. And even down here uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, um, you encounter folks from Citizens uh, Climate Lobby, which is a great organization that is actually working, I would say, what CCL is doing is an important part of the solution here because this has become such a partisan political issue and one of the two parties basically has as one of their central um, elements of their, uh, you know, their tenets uh, that climate change is a hoax. Um, but Citizens Climate Lobby, what it's trying to do is reframe the, the political debate. Uh, it's advocating for a revenue neutral carbon tax and uh, conservatives uh, tend to like uh, that sort of tax um, because it prevents any increase, an overall increase in taxation. You levy a carbon tax um, because you want less carbon, but you decrease income taxes, uh, for example, to balance that out so there's no increase in taxation. And I think the fact that uh, political conservatives are starting to come to the table um, and say that, hey, yeah, maybe we could get on board with something like a revenue neutral carbon tax, has the potential to at least engage the reasonable, the moderate Republicans in the party who right now are, are quiet. Um, they're quiet because of this uh, bulldozer, this steamroller that has come through uh, in the form of Donald Trump. But I, I think when sort of we get past the initial shock uh, of that latest development, uh, we'll find that there is room for a more nuanced uh, discussion and that good faith conservatives will be willing to come to the table. And we have to continue to try to create the strength so that they can come out in support of meaningful, um, uh, meaningful solutions to the climate change problem. Um, I don't know if you wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would have two responses to, to those questions. Um, the first is one of the things that we've seen in just the first two weeks of the Trump scene is that protest does work. Right? Protest has an impact, and not just masses of people out on the streets, though that's a good thing. But in the US, the, the, the biggest thing that's having an impact is people going to their congressional um, offices, calling people on the phone, email, I mean, just direct pressure. Uh, and it's working uh, with Obamacare, that slowed down. So that there is, I mean, that, that actually works, right? So um, keep the pressure up, right? That's one. The other thing, and this relates um, to what Michael was saying, is that we, we have such a, an ideologically based opposition. And I think the key thing is to get away from that. There are basic things that states, the governments are responsible for doing, right? Health and security are two of those key things. The reason the Chinese are doing so much, in part, is because of the health impacts of the coal that they're digging up and burning and that Australia is sending out, right? I mean, people are dying, um, and the air is disgusting, and people are responding. There's a public pressure that has to do with keeping people healthy, 
right? So that's a very different type of discussion. Here in Australia, we need to talk more about just transition. We need to talk more about the jobs that the renewable industry can provide for people. Instead of having uh, you know, Hazelwood shut down and people out of work and, and th that just being it, we know these things are going to happen. We should plan for these things, right? We just sort of have an actual transition plan that isn't just about the carbon, but it's about the workers and the communities as well. And that's how you get more people on your side. And response to Dr. McGregor's question? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I sort of thought I was answering both questions at the, at the same time. Uh, Fine. Yeah. Okay, excellent. We might go to our next two. Um, I'm Doug Cotton, author of the book Why It's Not Carbon Dioxide After All, and of several papers, the latest entitled Comprehensive Refutation of the Radiative Forcing Greenhouse Hypothesis. This is the result of many thousands of hours of research. And right at the core of your greenhouse hypothesis is a very false assumption that you can add radiation, the flux of radiation from two different sources, the sun and the atmosphere, so-called back radiation. Take away the non-radiative cooling. You've got 168 of solar radiation, 324 of back radiation, take away 102, and you get your 390. And you bung that 390 watts of into Stefan Boltzmann calculations, and bingo, it gives you 288, 15 degrees centigrade. Sorry, is which there a question, would be right for an even there a flux. question coming? But you just can't do that, sir. Just and wondering you what cannot the show is. me. Well, I ask Sorry. you to show me, and I'm offering you $50,000 if you can, okay. any <laughs> physics that proves that you could combine two separate fluxes with two separate Planck functions and get a temperature that an equivalent Planck function for one single source would give, because the, Planck fun the Stefan Boltzmann thing is based on the integral of a single Planck function. Let him answer, and then we'll and move on Veen's to the displacement I think, law I think you need determines to the temperature. To a question, if you could. I think we've heard okay. Well, as a question, well, produce the physics to support your thing, because it is you false physics. Take that one question. Just take that one question, because yeah. there's a lot in it. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, so, I mean, I would say uh, you ought to send that money to the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of uh, Joseph Fourier, because he established in the early, uh, in the early uh, 19th century uh, the existence of the greenhouse effect. Um, we would not be able to explain why Earth isn't a frozen planet in the absence of the greenhouse effect if you do the radiative just physics of it. Can we just wait for the answer, please? Um, so... Uh, there are, you know, the, the Air Force would not have been able to design heat-seeking missiles if it didn't understand the infrared absorptive properties of CO2. Our military has actually used an understanding of the greenhouse effect to design things like uh, heat-seeking missiles. Uh, we wouldn't be able to explain why Venus is a hothouse and Mars is frozen in the absence of the greenhouse right, effect. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the uh, world scientists um, collectively based on centuries of uh, research by physicists and others. Um, so the bottom line is there are no serious debates about uh, the existence of the greenhouse effect. If you go to a scientific conference, people aren't debating the greenhouse effect. They're not debating whether the earth is warming. They're not debating whether human activity is responsible for it. They're debating things like what precisely is going to happen to 
hurricanes as uh, the earth warms up? Um, what about the linkage between climate change and the behavior of the jet stream associated with extreme weather events? There are a lot of interesting questions that I and other climate scientists continue to work on, and that's what we uh, do. I mean, that's what, what we're, you know, what we love doing is trying to figure out answers to the things that we don't know. That's worthwhile. Simply, <laughs> I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Okay, good. I think we'll go to our next questioner. Thank you. So I guess a slight deviation from the previous question. Uh, Michael, David, hi. My name is Zach. I'm a renewable energy engineer from the States. I actually left for very same reasons as you did. The anti-intellectual strain in Florida is quite intense. Anyways, uh, as for my question, despite the boom of private sector renewable energy growth, there is still a global rise in nationalism and isolationism. With respect to this, how can we encourage developing nations, the potential great emitter of renewable, or excuse me, carbon emissions in the future, to skip the dirty industrialization phase that all developed nations currently have had? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's a key question, and I think if you look at China, you look at India as examples, I do think the health issue, I think the air quality issue and the health issue, um, as well as the security issue, right, providing one's own energy for one's own people, I think those are things that are starting to take hold. Uh, and I, I don't think there really has to be much more convincing given the way that the prices have gone. Right? So, I, I mean, it's funny, I think a decade ago that was a much more difficult question uh, I think now the question more has to do with not convincing, um, but of setting up financing, right, so that such a thing can happen. Thank you. Good. Okay. Nothing to add. Excellent. Uh, yes, sir, if you could identify yourself and then ask a question. Uh, my, my question was actually similar to the first gentleman's uh, about the, what you describe as a pseudo-crisis with this um, controversy that's come about with the NOAA data. And... Um, there's an article just appeared in the London Daily Mail on the 6th of February. Have you read that article? It's, uh, it describes the, the whistleblowing by a guy called John Baker. Do you really, do you really think that the, the changing of the uh, NOAA temperature data to airbrush out the pores in that in uh, the, the Thomas Cowell pause. Okay, we've paper. Sort of, I think we've dealt with it, this it, question already. Well, so we, we've already dealt with the could, NOAA could, question could, before. So could, could you, you dominate? You know, it, there's hard evidence that that data were, were changed. And now it's being changed back again. No. Okay, the pause is back on it's, again. It's been completely debunked, sir. It's it's a, it's a vicious it? smear against the honest scientists, and there's no place for that in good faith discourse. Okay, we'll move along. We'll move along to our next question. Thank you. And if you could identify yourself too, that'd be good. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Mann, uh, I'm sure you'll have uh, prompt answers for uh, some very brief questions that I have for you. Uh, firstly, what is the ideal concentration in parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere that... that uh, our mitigation efforts are designed to uh, achieve. Yep. Secondly, what is the ideal average global temperature? Just one question. And thirdly, at what level in parts per million does CO2 have a detrimental impact upon our health? 
Okay, so um, I sort of addressed that in, in my talk. Um, the issue isn't the absolute level of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, the issue is changing the concentration of CO2 relative to the values that existed during the development of human civilization over the last 10,000 years. So life can adapt to changes in CO2 concentrations and temperatures that occur over tens of millions of years. You give life 100 million years, it can adapt to Cretaceous level CO2. Uh, but you impose the same changes over a time scale of 100 years, what you're doing is you're taking uh, ecosystems and a civilization that is uh, heavily adapted to the, the modest variations in climate that have existed for tens of thousands of years, or 10,000 years in this case, um, and you're suddenly changing it, um, and you are leading, you're causing changes in rainfall patterns and temperatures and all of these attributes of our environment that we've adapted to. Um, so there is no one CO2 concentration that's the best other than the one that existed uh, during the period where human civilization evolved and thrived. And what we're doing is we're increasing CO2 dramatically away from that level that existed. So the right. answer is? Uh, excuse me, you've had the but question and the answer. With We're respect, the next that's one. Okay. not an answer. Next questioner, and if you could identify yourself, please, that'd be great. <laughs> um, my name's Scarlett Crawford from the Natural Resources Commission. And my question is for both of you, but mostly David. Um, not to break your decisions at all, but do you think it's better to... Or do you think you have more of an impact if you stay where you are and fight the good fight against climate deniers or move to another area that is <laughs> less challenging? That's, that's a really difficult personal question. Um, look, you know, you fight the fight. I, I lived in Arizona for 15 years. Um, that was a long fight. That was a really difficult fight. And, um, you know, when, when the hatred got so intense, um, and when the state government was insisting that um, professors turn in people they suspected of being illegal, uh, or else we would be breaking the law, you know, that, that just goes too far. It was just too, it was too, it was too thick. Um, and, you know, the future of higher education in a state like Arizona, uh, you know, just so. Um, so the, the, personal, the personal bit is you fight as long as you can. I think Arizona's a lost cause for another decade or so until the, uh, until the change of demographics, and then it's just going to be sweet justice. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, look, this is a question. It's an activist question as well. You know, you do what you can, and people burn out. And, and there's nothing wrong um, with shutting down, with taking time away, you know, uh, and, uh, and taking care of yourself, right? Self-care is absolutely crucial. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Michael would speak to that as well. I would say, you know, ask me this question again in a year. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a job waiting somewhere in Australia. Yeah. Okay, excellent, thank you. Okay, our next question, thank you. Uh, g'day, my name's Sam Coggins. I'm an agriculture student. And I wanted to ask Professor Mann why, um, why you conform to your polar bear theory or the rule. Like in, in agriculture, I learn about the, um, the catastrophic effects of climate change in agriculture and our ability to feed current generations, not just future ones. 
Like, why is biodiversity still central to the debate about climate change when there's impacts that will impact people right now, not just their grandchildren, not just some polar bear in the North Pole? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I uh, hope I didn't... I, what I tried to convey was the fact that I have uh, colleagues who say it's not about polar bears, it's about people, and I disagree with that. It's about both. <laughs> and yes, you know, the, post, the polar bear has sort of become the poster child for climate change, and I sort of joked about that. And, uh, and it does matter that we are changing uh, the world in a way that threatens these magnificent creatures and the Great Barrier Reef and, and so much of the beauty and the wonder uh, of our world. Um, that's a bad thing. And, um, and to me, it's ethically questionable uh, to be engaged in behavior that's doing that. But that having been said, even if you don't care about any of that, if you care about national security, for example, um, well, our national security leaders, our generals and admirals in the U.S. have uh, declared that climate change is the greatest threat to uh, national security uh, in the years ahead because of the conflict that it's creating. It's what they call a, um, uh, a threat multiplier. It takes existing tensions like those in the Middle East and suddenly you get an unprecedented drought in Syria. Um, you get uh, massive unrest. Uh, that ultimately leads to organizations, the development of organizations like ISIS, um, and the impact of that spreads to the entire world. And suddenly we find ourselves, um, you know, in the U.S., as many of you know, um, with a president who is now uh, arguing that we should ban uh, immigrants from entry into the country. And all of that instability has been magnified by an unprecedented drought. Um, it, if you care about uh, you know, the economy, if you talk to leading economists, they'll tell you that the cost of taking action to do something about climate change is far uh, less than the cost of not doing anything because what it's costing us in terms of uh, you know, increasingly expensive food, um, disrupted uh, uh, supply chains, um, uh, catastrophic damage from unprecedented extreme weather events. Uh, so, you know, you don't have to care about nature. You don't have to care about biodiversity. You don't have to care about the polar bears or the penguins. If you care about food or water or national security or the economy, um, then you ought to care about climate change. And, and that's a really important point. And I'm glad you asked that question because I can't stress that point enough. Great. Okay. Uh, My name is question. Peter Brewer. I'm a retired farmer and commodity trader. On the internet, we see graphs showing the level of carbon dioxide hundreds of millions of years ago. There are, there are a number of these graphs. My first question is, how accurate are these? And the second is, I get the impression from your answer to one of the previous questions that living in the Cretaceous wouldn't necessarily be such a disaster. Thanks for the question. So... You know, living, if we create uh, Cretaceous levels of increase in CO2 right now, we're looking at massive flooding of all of our coastal environments in the entire planet. So if, in, and to get at this question again, what's the best CO2 level? If we um, had developed uh, during the last ice age when CO2 levels were at about 180 parts per million, 
Uh, modern pre-industrial was about 280 parts per million. We're at about 400 parts per million right now. So if we had uh, developed, if civilization had developed um, during the last ice age and we increased CO2 enough simply to take us from an ice age to the pre-industrial, we would see massive coastal flooding. So it's not the level of CO2 the absolute level of CO2, it's the change in that level away from the levels that persisted during the development of civilization. Um, graphs about CO2 over time, um, we have annually resolved information from CO2 trapped in ice cores uh, that we can accurately date back for hundreds of years, even more than a thousand years. So we have very precise annual estimates of CO2 that go back more than a thousand years. Once you go farther back than that, um, you have uh, ice cores that um, provide coarser temporal resolution, so you don't have a value for every year, but you can get average values over multiple decades. Um, that sort of evidence can be extended back uh, nearly a million years, uh, more than 800,000 years. And that is pretty accurate. The CO2 uh, reconstructions from ice cores going back uh, 800,000 years are quite reliable, and what they tell us is that the level that we see right now is unprecedented as far back as you can go with those ice cores. Now, there are other indirect uh, lines of evidence about CO2 from things like uh, the stomata of plants, which change as CO2 changes, the morphology of a plant leaf, um, and the, the stomata, which take in CO2 for uh, photosynthesis, that changes as a function of CO2 levels. So there, there are actually, um, there's ancient uh, gas, ancient atmosphere that's trapped in ambers, and we can actually measure the concentration of CO2 in those ancient ambers. There are other lines of evidence that go back millions of years, and those sort of less, um, those more tenuous lines of evidence suggest that CO2 right now is unprecedented in several million years, probably three, maybe four, maybe five million years. The CO2 levels that we will have at the end of the century if we do nothing uh, to curtail our burning of fossil fuels um, will put us back, we'll, the last analogy for, the, for what we'll have um, would probably be tens of millions of years ago. Um, so we're talking about a geologically unprecedented change in CO2. Yeah, so 100 million years ago, uh, CO2 levels were, were probably higher, uh, several times higher than they are today. Um, life adapted to those changes because they occurred over tens of millions of years. You give me tens of millions of years, I can adapt to changes like that. You give me 100 years, it's not going to happen. Thanks. Okay, that's, that's a very good response. Thank you. We'll move along, given we have lots of people wanting to ask questions. So our next questioner, again, if you could just identify yourself, that would be great. Yeah, uh, g'day. Um, my name is George Papaniklo, concerned citizen and another potential victim of climate change, like everybody else. Um, I just want, it's, it's ironic, actually, that we're having this conversation here because it's only a few hundred metres away. In the 1970s, Sydney University had the world-leading solar research program, uh, which shut down with the Conservative government under fossil fuel interests behest. Um, it was Australia first and daylight second, pardon the pun. Um, I, just <laughs> I just wanted to, uh, seeing we're in a business school, put the, the business case for this. Um, 
people, for example, like the Koch brothers, the American billionaires and other people who have these strong um, um, libertarian kind of uh, ideologies driving it, um, have got into an alliance, obviously, with fossil fuel interests. So if I could ask the first question, which came first, a bit the chicken and the egg? Did the fossil fuel interest drive it and then the libertarians came on board or the libertarians there and the fossil fuel people saw a chance to, to take over? And, and, and secondly, also in terms of other factors that might undercut this climate change science that we're obviously seeing here being played out uh, uh, backwards and forwards, um, there's obviously a case now, uh, places like Saudi Arabia funding terrorism, there's obviously a cost to that in terms of the extra security that uh, is required you know, in airports and in so many ways. There's, it's a huge cost um, and it's only getting worse. Um, are there other factors you can see, including sort of uh, health costs to uh, uh, carbon pollution, that can drive a different case uh, and then maybe get undercut this climate change backwards and forwards that are obviously having, having to deal with and there will be no argument then because there will be other factors that will drive it? Great. Okay, two questions there. You just do this quickly. You know, I, I, I would say that um, to the extent that... Um, there are, you know, in the U.S., there's been some really interesting polling um, that shows that when you ask people, you know, should we move to renewable energy, uh, solar energy, wind energy, uh, amazingly large uh, majorities of Americans say yes, far more than accept that climate change is happening. So what it tells you is that um, sometimes it's about the framing. And if you frame the issue positively in terms of the choices we have before us, you can almost skip past some of the more contentious uh, aspects. You know, it, 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 even um, using terms, uh, you know, if you use climate change, um, then there are conservatives who immediately um, are, are turned off and, and they tune out from the conversation because they've been told that you know climate change denial is, is part of their their uh, their, their tribal identity as a faithful conservative. Um, so you have to get around that. You have to find a side door, and one of the side doors um, uh, is you know do you believe in clean energy? Uh, do you support uh, renewable energy? And 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 people do because somehow they instinctively know it's right in a way where the sort of the denialism that they've been taught is no longer interfering with their instinctual sense that, that this is the right thing to do. So I think when you frame it in terms of positive energy choices, energy security, although we know that can cut either way, um, uh, there are ways to find a side door to talk about this issue um, to people who might not uh, be, you know, they, they might not even accept that climate change is real, but that doesn't mean they can't be brought on board to be part of the solution anyways. There's a reason Turnbull used the term innovation, right, in the last election. People like innovation. Yeah. I mean, innovation is one of those focus group words that just works. He just didn't realize he was digging himself a hole, right, because innovation means renewables. Okay, we're into, we're into our last 10 minutes and we've got four people here and I think we've got three or four over there. So um, we're going to have to ramp up the speed a little bit. So keep your questions tight if you could. That'd be okay. great. Thanks. Uh, Crystal Fleming from the Investor Group on Climate Change. It was raised in the workshop with you yesterday, Dr Mann, that we in Australia really haven't had an honest conversation about the full impacts of climate change and what it's going to mean, um, even at that two-degree level, which we've accepted as a politically safe guardrail but is it really? 
And I'm wondering in the age of the Trumpocene and when we're seeing politicians who aren't able or willing to have the conversations, when science and scientists are being discredited and when we have media that's often complicit with the fossil fuel industry or themselves discredited, how do we actually not go about now having those conversations? When you put it that way, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you, know it's, it, you continue to fight the good fight because even when times uh, are tough and, and things look dark, um, in, in the U.S., um, you know, we, we've seen remarkably abrupt transitions in sort of the politics of certain key issues, um, marriage equality, um, the allowance of, of gay marriage. Um, what, there was no support at all. It was polling in the, in the 30s, um, uh, you know, just a matter of uh, years ago. Maybe 30% of the population supported gay marriage, supported marriage equality. And somehow we just hit a tipping point in the public consciousness. Um, and, and I don't know how much of it was generational. I don't know how much of it was just sort of a change in the prevailing ethos. Uh, but suddenly there were very large margins of, uh, of popular support for acting on marriage equality. And you had conservatives and progressives on board. And it was nobody could have imagined that you would see such a political shift over such a, a short period of time. I feel that. Climate change and renewable energy is sort of the same thing. Um, I, I, as I alluded to in my response to this previous question, I think people instinctively understand that fossil fuels, it's an outmoded uh, technology. It just doesn't feel right in the 21st century. And they recognize innovation and moving ahead and renewable energy and using our understanding of technology. Um, I think that's a winning argument and I think it will prevail. Um, but there are going to be some fierce battles in the meantime. I and mean, we're fighting those battles in the US, and we're fighting those battles in Australia. But you continue to fight the good fight, and you continue to put on pressure. Because before you know it, uh, the prevailing political winds can shift rather abruptly. And what we want to be sure is that when they do, when the, when the winds shift to a more favorable direction, we want to be able to hit the ground running. Um, and, and I think that's critical. Great. The other thing, I just really quickly add the other thing there is, you know, it's not just about the federal government, right? We've seen this here, right? The states are moving. The feds don't like it, but the states are moving. It's the same thing in the U.S. Um, and on adaptation, it's not the federal government leading. Uh, it's the cities uh, that are leading. It's Sydney and it's Melbourne uh, that are leading there. And so, you know, pay attention uh, to what's happening at a different level of government as well. Yeah. Okay, and our next question. Thank you. Uh, hi, Jessica Moran, a primary education student at Macquarie University. Um, I was just wondering, particularly since I am starting to be a primary school teacher, what kind of recommendations you might have for uh, explaining climate change in an educational standpoint? Well, um, I would say, uh, first of all, uh, we've got... Dr. Carl here in the third row, so maybe you ought to see if you can get him to come out and give a guest lecture to your students. Um, uh, we have a good friend in common, and Bill Nye, uh, known in the U.S. as Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, and you know, it, 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 excitement about science is infectious. Um, and you know, if you want to get people to learn about something, especially when it's difficult, and science and math can be difficult, you got to get them excited. They've got to see the reward. Um, and I think uh, Dr. Carl does that so effectively, and that you can do that as a teacher. You can find materials 
um, and guest speakers, and just ways of framing it that get them excited about science. You've got to be excited about science uh, first, because if you're not excited, you're not going to have the patience to do the hard work necessary to get through it. And so I would say just get them excited. Figure out what gets them excited. You know, if it, they're, you know, I have a daughter who's 11 years old, and, you know, she, um, and they're, games that she likes to play on her iPad, and there are, you know, there are things that her friends do, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and I can see ways that that, that that could be used, that could be funneled towards getting them interested and, and excited about science. Great, okay. Next question. Uh, to... No. To uh, take advantage of that favourable win, Tactically, don't we, whenever we mention 2014, 15 and 16, shouldn't we be immediately mentioning that this year will be colder because Donald Trump is here now? I mean, the La Nina... <laughs> He'll fix it. Seriously, right. the La Nina years have begun and so the next series of years will not be record heat waves on the average terminal as there. And by the end of the year... Donald Trump is going to be glorifying the fact that he has cooled the earth. Okay, well, let's see what the, we might um, take a second question, given we've got just a few more people. So just hold that and then just a second Hi, question. Hi, um, Howard Witt, uh, Citizens Climate Lobby again. Uh, thank you very much for your great talk and for um, explaining to the audience how we are creating the political will. A very quick question about trade barriers and how what we call border adjustments might be used by those countries that do introduce a price against those that do not. Great, okay. So something about La Nina and then trade barriers. Let's go. I'll field the first one if you want to field the second one. Sure. Okay, great. So uh, let me first um, you know, make it clear that under Donald Trump, um, we will have the greatest El Ninos and the greatest La Ninas. They will be great. They will be great. And I mean, you haven't seen an El Nino like the El Ninos that we're going to see. And We'll have great trade barriers. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, you, but what you say is absolutely correct. And it, and it gets almost back to, you know, you have to appreciate science and understand science to, 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 to have an appreciate for, uh, appreciation for concepts like signal and noise. And so it's very important for us to emphasize that global warming is this upward trending ramp. And as long as you have an upward trending ramp and you have fluctuations about it, you are going to set more and more records as the ramp continues to align with the positive fluctuations. And when you have negative fluctuations, you won't set records. But what's true, for example, is that 2017 will be the warmest La Nina year on record. And so there are ways to talk about it. Yeah, La Nina cools the climate and, and El Nino warms the climate, but we've had El Ninos and La Ninas before. Why is it that all of our recent El Nino years are the warmest years, and all of our recent La Nina years are the warmest La Nina years? Um, there are ways to talk about it in a way that really sort of gets at this distinction between signal and noise. And it's a critical one because, you know, you. You live by the noise, you die by the noise. Uh, it, it's easy um, to, to lose the argument if you don't convey that nuance. If we don't do it now. 
Well, we, we should, and you know, scientists, climate scientists I talk to are, are aware of that. We, we know that you know, what, what the critics like to do is they'll, they'll start out with a really warm year like 1998, and then as soon as we get a cold year, they'll say, look, I can draw a trend line and it's cooling. It's, <laughs> well, that's not the way it works. We have to explain that that's not the way it works. And there's scientists that are already expecting we're going to see that argument. We're going to have to do a good job in framing the response to it. Great. Okay. And um, the trade question? Yeah, um, I'm not really sure how to answer that question other, other than to say, for me, this is going to be one of the more interesting things over the next couple of years, right? In, in the face of the obstacles thrown up um, by what is now an official petrostate uh, in the US, uh, it'll be really interesting to see um, what the response of the rest of the world community is. Um, so I, I don't know how to answer it other than to say, you know, just um, let's pay attention. Okay, great. Um, got three more questioners, so we'll do. We'll see if we can get three questions because we're nearly close to time. See how we go. Anyway, yes, uh, gentlemen. Uh, as a military officer, uh, obviously we are deeply concerned about the security situation that climate change has in the next few years, as you alluded to earlier. And obviously, the Pentagon has been forbidden from uh, planning contingencies based on that. What do you see as the events that lead to the end of climate change denial? When do we reach a point? in your sort of you know, looking into the future, that you think we can know, like, those nihilists will no longer be able to justify that position clearly based on catastrophic events. Okay, good, hold that thought. Second question. Hi, um, Vivian Rayner from the University of Sydney's Division of Natural Sciences, um, PR advisor. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about facts and alternate facts, and my question is just how much does that take up time talking about things that don't matter, like David was saying? And you've sort of touched on things that you can do, but um, like, what do you see as the solution to this sort of public discourse about having convincing people who don't understand the science? Okay, so there's some similarities in those questions. Yeah. And final, maybe just the third one, and then we'll respond. Yes. Oh, okay. Hi there. <laughs> just hold that. <laughs> um, my name is Fatima. Um, I'm a science student. I just want to thank you first uh, for all the work that you do that we aren't able to do, um, and for your talk. Um, I know, I've noticed recently that people are, like it's easy to come and attend these events and to have these discussions, but it's much harder to do the work, to put in the effort, to march on the streets, to donate to uh, uh, organizations that then influence policy makers. So how, what, it's similar to the question that you asked in that, what are the best ways you think that we can use our efforts that we have as citizens to, um, help, uh, you know, at, at just efforts that we can help the current, you know, state that we're in um, and convince others to do the same. Because a lot of people say, you know, like, what's, protest, what's protesting going to do? But we, we've seen recently, you know, what, you know, the women's marches and the marches that have occurred in the last two weeks. Thank you. Thanks. Great. Well, so let me maybe sort of tackle uh, you know, the, the first one and then the second two um, uh, together. Um, there's, you know, this event in, in the United States um, in the 1970s, there's a river in Ohio, uh, the Cuyahoga River, that caught on fire. And that was a, you know, it was a, it was a threshold event. It, it led to a, a fundamental change in, in consciousness, a tipping point in the American consciousness. It really drove home the fact that we had a problem with water pollution and air pollution. And it really mobilized a, a generation to, to care about those issues. Uh, enough so that our politicians acted to do something about it. We got the Clean Air Act passed, and we got the Clean Water Act passed. And uh, some of us wonder, you know, what is that moment? Um, what is it that has to happen um, when it comes to climate change? 
And we, we feel like, well, haven't we had those moments? Unprecedented drought in California, uh, the worst drought in at least a thousand years, um, devastating droughts in Oklahoma and Texas that killed off 30% of their livestock um, in 2011. Uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, an unprecedented flooding of the New York City and New Jersey coastline that cost several billions of dollars of damage. Um, and you know, one can go on down the list, and it seems like our media environment is so different now with the 24-hour news cycle that even the worst calamity, if we're lucky, lives a few news cycles and then it's out of our consciousness. And it makes it a real challenge to see the sort of sustained change in consciousness that, we, that we've seen in the past. So I don't know what that Cuyahoga River moment is in the climate change debate because our you know, we, we have such a different media environment, a fragmented media environment, and such a rapid news cycle. Um, and uh, I, I, so I would say, sort of now tying it into the other questions, that one thing we do know, and, and you alluded to this, um, was that um, mobilizing public opinion still matters. You can still impact politicians when you turn out in the streets. Um, there is going to be a march of scientists in Washington, D.C. in April. Um, and when's the last time you heard about scientists marching in the streets? Um, it, it's what we call a man-bites-dog story. It's not a usual story. And, and the media are going to cover it. And it's going to get um, a lot of press coverage, a lot of attention. Uh, I'll be marching with my friend Bill Nye uh, in, that, um, in, in that parade. And there are ways to mobilize public attention and to exploit the modern media um, uh, sort of culture, uh, social media, getting things to trend and go viral on Twitter and Facebook. And young folks are especially good at that, so we're going to need the young folks engaged if we're going to mobilize this change in consciousness. But I think we can do it, and I think we've seen evidence um, you know, in, in the first uh, month of the uh, Trump administration that you can still impact policy when you turn out and you march in the streets and you call legislators and you leverage pressure. Um, that still works. Greg, David? Yeah, that's, I mean, I would just say the same thing, constant pressure and, and not just in the streets, but in the offices yeah. of your elected representatives as well. Um, take it directly to them. Um, I really appreciate the, um, the security question as well. The, the Pentagon, I mean, say what you will about the Pentagon, and there's plenty of stuff to say, but their, um, their climate modeling and their security modeling has just been phenomenal for quite a long time now. Um, so, uh, and many of the things that they have been predicting for a decade and a half are going to happen. The Syrian uprising, yeah. Yeah, a uh, hurricane in Mexico. Uh, so, yeah, just... I mean, it's sad to think, just sit and wait. Um, but I think there will be events. There will be, uh, there'll be another Sandy. There'll be another Katrina. There'll be something um, that does impact security uh, in a way, um, you know, way more, uh, way more important than uh, people trying to come in through, uh, through an airport. Okay, and I've, I've just been handed a note from uh, Peter Hannum from the Herald. He's just let me know that Australia's going to have a march here in Sydney too. Australian scientists, I'm guessing, on the same day. And of course, Sydney marches before New York and DC. So we'll be, <laughs> we'll be leading the world. Yeah. 
Okay, so we have now reached the end of our special Sydney Ideas evening. Um, I'd like you to join me in thanking our speakers, Michael Mann and David Schlossberg. I'd also like to thank you, um, our audience, um, for coming out tonight and attending. It's really heartening to see this full house um, for, for Michael's address. The, the planning of Michael's visit to Australia has been a year in the making, and there's been many people involved at SEI in helping make that happen. I'd like to thank them. Um, keep in touch with Sydney Environment Institute on their webpage in terms of forthcoming events. Keep in touch with Sydney Ideas also. There's lots of exciting things happening um, in coming weeks in related fields. Uh, and with that, I'll say good night and thank you. Thank you.